0: Hey, this is Brent Jensen, and you're listening to No Sleep Till Subway, the show where we talk about the music that makes your skin vibrate. Joining me today is Steve Jones, senior VP of Radio at Stingray, overseeing content on nearly 100 radio stations from coast to coast here in Canada. He is also the author of two popular marketing books, Brand Like a Rockstar and Start You Up. Steve also has a very busy speaking schedule speaking at conferences and businesses worldwide. Steve, thank you so much for coming it is in today. my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Great to have you here. I oh, appreciate it. So now, Steve, we were introduced by a mutual friend because we have a lot in common. Mm-hmm. So we've both written musical books, music-based books. Uh, we're both speakers. We tend to speak on the same topic. You know, we talk about how music elicits an emotional response, what we can learn from that, and apply in virtually
1: limitless capacities. Yeah, music is amazing that way. And, uh, I, I, you know, my, my story start sort of goes back to, uh, to growing up in a small town and, and, and being in school and loving music and being completely incapable of playing it. Despite I took lessons <laughs> for piano. I took drums, guitar, tried to play alto sax in the school band. Everything I did failed. Yeah. Um, but I love music and wanted to be part of it. And I became fascinated when I moved to Toronto with the songs on the radio. Hmm. And this is the early 80s, and there was so much great music coming out in all genres. And back then, there was such a great critical mass on the radio. I mean, people didn't have the fragmentation of media they have today. So everybody knew the hits. Yes. Everybody sang the same songs. Yeah. And it was a fantastic time to get into music. But I was not just fascinated with music. I was fascinated by the people who presented the music. Mm. And I decided at a very... Disturbingly young age, probably twelve or thirteen, that I wanted to be on the radio. Oh wow! And so I, uh, I, I forged a path down that route, which took a bunch of different twists and turns, and yep. ended up here.
0: Wow! And we learned in chatting before the show that you actually worked in Sudbury while I was there attending university.
1: I, yeah, it's crazy, right? You may have you may have tolerated my drivel on I the did. radio for a I while. Did, I, did a <laughs> I had to
0: because I, you know, Q was the the, the big name in town. I mean, I think it was the only station really if you're a rock fan. Yeah. So I was listening to Q all the time.
1: It was a fun radio station to work at. That was the early nineties and Q ninety two in Sudbury was a just a powerhouse radio station. Yeah. It was a tremendous amount of fun. And Sudbury is one of those cities that if you don't ever go there for a period of time, you know, you're likely to to sort of shrug your shoulders at Sudbury. Mm-hmm. I have friends who lived in Winnipeg for years. Yep. And they say the same thing. You know, you go there and you discover that there's, there's a great layer of culture. There's a great layer of, there's a great uh, amount of beauty mm-hmm. in the city. And I loved that. We, we had a great two years in Sudbury. It was a lot of fun.
0: Oh, yeah. Yeah. It's fantastic. It's a great summer city, too, actually. Yeah, it really whether is. Believe it or not, people don't think that.
1: Yeah. And so you're from just outside Sudbury, right? Yes. Yeah. Grew up in Espanola. I, I grew up in a small town called Marathon. Ah. So, you know, make Sudbury look like southern Ontario. I was north of <laughs> Sault Ste. Marie in this little town, like 3,000 people. Wow. And that was a uh, complete isolation before the internet. Wow. So what was that like? Ah, uh, I look back on it now as an adult and I think it could have, I, I wish I would have appreciated it more, mm-hmm. but I didn't like it. I resented growing up in that town mm-hmm. for a long time mm-hmm. and still probably do to a degree. Yep. Growing up in a small town like that, extremely geographically isolated, you can relate being in where you were. It's, uh, you're just shut off from everything. Yes. The only culture you know is the culture nearby. Mm-hmm. And you don't get the benefit of today. You could live in a town like that with the internet and probably feel pretty connected to the world. Mm-hmm. But back then you really were like on the edge of the planet. Yeah. As far as culture went.
0: I completely agree. Yeah. And, and we talked about this earlier. No sleep till subway is about that very thing. I I felt like I learned everything about the world through the TV screen, really. Yeah. You know, and, and like you, I was, I was frustrated too, you know, especially when I left and I, I had met people who lived in Toronto or Ottawa or the States. And I felt like I had a lot of catching up to do. Like I had missed out on a lot of things. Yeah. So there was resentment there too. Yeah. My
1: path was, um, we lived here in Toronto, uh, right downtown. Yeah. And, I just, you know, loved all the music. It was a great time to be alive. And, and then we moved to marathon mm. and it was like a complete shut off wow. of that culture valve <laughs> and you had absorbed all this music. And back in the early eighties, that was everything from the clash and, and the British new wave to the sort of new romantic British stuff. Like, mm. you know, Duran and culture club. Yeah. Um, a lot of the sort of pop alternative that was emerging at the time. And then you go and just get completely cut off from all of it. Yeah. And then your only hookup to music and culture is, you know, Good Rockin' Tonight. Yes. And Friday Night Videos and, you know, oh. your friends who got MTV on pirated American satellite dishes. And I would lie awake at night listening to WLS Chicago on an AM speaker. Wheels. Yes. Me <laughs> All, too. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Amazing. Who was that guy with the glasses that were so thick? It looked like you could see germs. Who was who that dude? <laughs> and I mean, he had a great big forehead. Remember that yes, guy? Yes. He was on wheels. And they also had a, a TV show called it was out of detroit yeah um ah, damn i can't remember but i yeah i was all over that
1: it was chicago and detroit radio um and some other you know little signals you could get on skips across lake superior that i listened to you know growing up uh so yeah i i think a lot of my musical tastes now that i look back on what resonates with me Mm -hmm. were formed by living in that In that small town and the juxtaposition of coming there from here in Toronto. Yes,
0: certainly. Yeah. Yeah. And interesting that you did not take the metal route for that reason, because we were, as I was saying earlier, I felt like I was a metal kid because I needed, you know, that kind of bombast and yeah. color and ferocity, right? I needed stronger sensations and I overlooked the, the wham and Bruce Springsteen, even stuff like that, because yeah. I wanted that, you know, that aggression.
1: Yeah. I, I came from a different perspective and, and, uh, moving to that small town, I, I couldn't, and now that you frame it with that need for aggression and color in an otherwise sort of black and white introverted, very contained world. That makes sense. That resonates. I've always wondered why growing up in that town, you felt like a bit of an outsider if you didn't embrace Aussie and <laughs> and uh you weren't into Iron Maiden, you didn't yeah. have an Eddie shirt. I didn't have an Eddie shirt. I had I a didn't. platinum blonde shirt. And my ear was pierced. And uh I can now go back. It's funny to go back now and I can appreciate that music yeah. that I didn't like at all, that I pushed away. Same. I can grab now Iron Maiden and go. That was really good. Yeah. There's some really incredible musicianship and songwriting going on there. But at the time I was like, you know, that was metalhead stuff and you were one of this sort of small group of ostracized people who liked pop music or alternative music or weird music. Yeah. And uh there was almost a uh you know the people of Marathon who are hearing this podcast are going to probably uh want me to be hung in the town square. I don't think they do that anymore there, but they could. But you were there's almost like a musical culture of bullying that happened. Oh, absolutely there You know, was. yeah. If you weren't into the cool hard music, you yeah. were, you know, you you weren't cool. But that
0: went the other way too. I mean, I was I wore a Metallica t-shirt to to school, Master Puppets, and I was ridiculed for it. Really? Yeah. Like really was. Yeah, because the metal head, po- I, I mean, I wasn't really a metal head, but I loved heavy metal. Mm-hmm. I kind of dressed like a prep a little bit. Like I was kind of like a jack of all trades, master and none, social kid, right? But I remember wearing that t-shirt and getting laughed at by, you know, because the school was predominantly preppies yeah. or Benetton and all that stuff.
1: Sure. <laughs> I guess it does work both ways. Yeah. I, I, I remember, you know, living here in Toronto and seeing people were, were way more accepting of the... Fringes of music, mm. and Toronto's a great was a great music town in in that era with CFNY being incredibly popular and yeah. bringing all this alternative music to the forefront. And then you had the top forty stations like the 1050 Chum and, and CFTR that played a lot more alternative music than any American top forty would play. Mm. And to this day, the stations like. Uh, like like boom ninety seven three or or Q one hundred seven will embrace a lot more pop alternative from the late seventies early eighties than any uh, American counterparts would because that culture still exists in Toronto it's kind of cool but growing up in Marathon that did not exist yeah no
0: definitely not yeah. there was it was like espanola, there was a social demarcation I'm sure yeah where your identity was determined by the music that you listened to very much That's so very yeah. simple right yeah wow. Similar uh, upbringings as well, it sounds like. It's a small world. It really is. Okay, you have got some great songs here, my friend.
1: This was hard. It's, it's not easy, right? It's not. And you think about these songs. When you said to me, give me five songs that truly, you know, I forget the words you use, but sort of truly move you and represent you. Mm hmm. You could go down so many different avenues with that. You know, what, what song was playing when we drove home with my firstborn son in the, in the car? Like, I I mean, there are songs that hit you in moments of your life, Mm -hmm. but I tried to think of it in sort of not, I guess bigger, but sort of songs that all those years later still resonate with you. Yes. Because there are songs that can be, uh, representative of moments in your life that years later, don't feel like songs that truly represent you as an individual. Mm-hmm. Songs that resonate in the moment, we we sort of touched on this before we hit record, which was the idea that uh, there are songs that last for years and take on entirely new life of their own over the course of years. Mm-hmm. And you can look back on songs that were number one hits or songs that were massive in their day that nobody cares to hear anymore. And you can find a wealth of songs that weren't very big in their day, but somehow over the course of years have taken on meaning that goes far deeper than anything they were able to accomplish in their so-called hit cycle. Yeah. So, you know, this was a tough project and it was fun.
0: Yeah. You actually had had an amazing observation that I had not considered before about Blister in the Sun.
1: Yeah. Violent Femmes, Blister in the Sun, was, I mean, to this day feels like a song that everybody knows. Everybody can sing the words to. You'll hear it in movies and, uh, you know, in sports stadiums. And yet at the time when that song came out, unless you were a violent Femmes fan, of which there weren't, you know, a ton, <laughs> it wasn't really a big song. It, it didn't really find its place. I think radio at the time didn't have a spot for it. It wasn't a rock song like Metallica or an ACDC. Yeah. It wasn't a Cyndi Lauper or Duran Duran pop song. And alternative radio didn't really exist in a big way. And now you look back all these years, you know, in the rearview mirror. And that song just resonates. Mm. It's a great piece of music. It's universal. Yes. And it's catchy as hell. Yes. And I think if you were to play that song for people now and say, what chart position did that reach on the Billboard Hot 100 when it came out? A lot of people would probably say it was number one. That would be a very interesting experiment, wouldn't it? It really would. And I have yeah. no idea what the chart position was. But it wasn't number one. No, no. It wasn't no. even close.
0: I was saying it it had more of a cult status mm-hmm. to me, you know.
1: Yeah, those on the inside that got it and knew it loved it. Yes. It sort of percolated there for a long time. Yeah. And then I think as alternative radio became a real big thing in the late 80s into the 90s, these alternative radio stations who are on a feeding frenzy of Stone Temple Pilots and and Nirvana and Pearl mm-hmm. Jam are looking for a gold library. And you go back into the 80s and there's certain songs that stand out. You can't yes. play Def Leppard. You can't play Metallica. But you find this Violent Femme song. And it works its way into movies and pop culture and becomes a, a song that in its afterlife is 100 times bigger than it was in its life. Which is unimaginable. It's right? one of the beautiful things about music, isn't it? Yeah, it yeah. really is. It's fascinating. <laughs> Very cool.
0: All right. So your first song, Steve, is uh, by Morrissey. And it is Suede Head.
1: Yeah, Suedehead is, uh, I, I I could have chosen probably any one of a dozen songs by Morrissey or the Smiths. I chose Suedehead because it was that moment where Morrissey went, you know, solo. Mm-hmm. But what I love about that song and what moves me about that song to this day is the ability to take something so sad and dark and gut-wrenchingly emotional mm-hmm. And put it over a musical beat that is so incredibly uplifting and happy. Yeah. I mean, those opening notes, you think he's going to come in singing about the happiest topic ever. Yeah. And then the whole lyric is, you know, why do you come here? Why do you bring me down? I'm so sorry I ever got into your life. And it's this deeply emotional song, like most of Morrissey's lyrics are. And then I love how, so the song sort of is, is looking back on a relationship, saying, you know, I'm so sorry this went wrong. Why are you still on my mind? Why are you still in my life? Mm-hmm. And then in the bridge, he suddenly seems to take this completely different approach. And the bridge is, it, he keeps singing repeatedly, it was a good lay. It was a good lay. As if to say, well, you know, I can now justify this relationship as just some sort of encounter. Yeah. Anyway, I love the uh, the way that Morrissey in general, not just with Suedehead, but with so much of his music, made it okay to be weird. He made it okay to be an outsider. That's right. And going back to the theme of growing up in a small town and feeling like you were an outsider and you didn't fit in with the cool kids, Morrissey made that cool. Mm-hmm. Morrissey made it okay to be different. And I went to see him when he played Toronto last spring. And uh, just watching the fans react to Morrissey playing in Canada for the first time in 20 years, mm-hmm. running up on stage to hug him and thank him. Wow. And the security at the show would allow it. To a, to a degree, if you were able to get up on stage, mm-hmm. it, it was very clear that it was choreographed, that the security team was there to prevent Morrissey from getting hurt, mm-hmm. but they weren't there to prevent the fans from touching Morrissey. Really? So if you're able to get up on stage, you know, you could hug him. Wow. And some people got closer than others, but he really um, brought out some very visceral gratitude mm-hmm. from his fans. And I think that goes back to making people. Who felt ostr- ostracized feel embraced, and yeah, that's right. what Morrissey and the Smiths did for me, and that's what that song kind of represents to me now.
0: Yeah, Now, I had met u- people at university who felt the exact same way.
1: It's cool, huh? yeah. and, I, and I could have chosen, you know, I thought of "Every Day's Like Sunday," yeah, because the li- <laughs> boy marathon's going to hate me after this. <laughs> um, you know, the the lyrics of, of "Every Day's Like Sunday," where he sings, uh, "This is the seaside town that they forgot to bomb." <laughs> Like, just like completely shitting over his hometown because he doesn't feel like he belongs here. Yeah. And he's stuck here. Yeah. Now, that's not how I feel about my hometown, but that's a representation of how trapped it felt. Yeah. At the time. Yeah. Same. Yeah. I absolutely agree. And to this day, Morrissey and the Smiths, their entire catalog, but Suedehead in particular, represents that.
0: Yeah. Have you ever heard uh, Backward
1: Town by Grapes of Wrath? Oh my God, yeah, yes. That, I have not heard it in years, but yeah. what a great song.
0: Yeah, same, right? Very yeah. visceral. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Kevin Kane was on the show, and I reached out to him, actually, to say, you know, thank you for that song, and then we kind of, you know, went back and forth, and he came on the show. But uh, that song was big for me.
1: Yeah, I can imagine. I remember that song well. That was a great song. And that they, they had a lot of, I mean, all, all the things I wasn't. Yes. Another example of like those lyrics that just, wow, they hit you. Incredible. Yeah.
0: Yeah. All right.
1: Bob Marley is next in Redemption Song. So Redemption Song for me, I've always had uh, this feeling that I was in the wrong place geographically. Mm. And again, back to the theme of, of being in a small town and not fitting in and like a lot of people i always had this sort of caribbean island dream like you know i'm supposed to be i'm i'm supposed to be somewhere as jimmy buffett said where the weather suits my clothes yeah. i'm supposed to be somewhere else uh and i embraced bob marley very early loved reggae music mm-hmm. and i could again have chosen any one of bob marley's songs and probably put it on that list but redemption song first of all there's an amazing canadian connection to redemption song and that is that uh, the opening line of Redemption Song, Emancipate Yourselves from Mental Slavery, mm-hmm. is a line from a speech given by human rights activist Marcus Garvey mm. in Sydney, Nova Scotia in 1973. Wow. 19, sorry, 1937. Long before civil rights was a thing in America, long before the struggles of Martin Luther King. And, you know, it was, it was a different era. And, uh, and Marcus Garvey was bravely, and, and in hindsight, maybe somewhat controversially advocating for an Africanization of black people. Mm-hmm. And, uh, Bob Marley clearly, you know, embraced that. And a lot of Bob Marley's music focuses on that, uh, that racial struggle. Yeah. And Bob had the dual racial struggle of being biracial in Jamaica and, and feeling like he didn't fit even in his own island where, where, you know, he was black, but not black enough. Yeah. So Redemption Song takes that lyric from that human struggle, from that speech, and puts it into the song that was, for me, this eye-opening moment where music can say something so important. And he says it in such a spirit of of peace and love. And I just love the way he says—he's talking about this hundreds-years-old struggle of black culture in North America— racism and slavery and all the shit and he says it like won't you help me sing these songs of freedom he's not saying i'm against you because you've you know mistreated me yeah he's embracing everyone and it's just such a beautiful thing and not to uh sound all you know spacey on it but it's uh it's a really cool sentiment to say i have been or my people have been so horribly treated so Let's hold hands and sing and be one. It's kind of mm-hmm. cool. Yeah. The other thing about redemption song, uh, we would know only in, in, in hindsight in history, is that Bob made that song when he knew he was dying mm. and hadn't disclosed he was dying. His cancer had returned, and, and, and Rita writes about it in her, in her book about Bob, that he knew he was dying. So when you take that into consideration, wow. you know, won't you help me sing these songs of freedom, because all I'll ever know is redemption songs. Oh. Uh, it just, it just, uh, to this day, if, uh, someone said to me once, what if the plane you were going down, you know, you're, you're going to crash and you've got one song you can listen to before you go. I said, it's redemption song for sure. Yeah. It's quite a message in that tune. Yeah. And there's different versions. You know, the version we mostly know is the acoustic one, but there's a full band version. Uh, there's live versions. It's just a song that every time he did, it sort of, sort of had a new personality, a new dimension to it. So I love that you
0: framed it in that way. Now I, I see the song in a completely different light.
1: A lot of what I embrace about the song is because, you know, I heard it the first time and loved it, but then discovered all these things about it, all these layers to it that did the exact same thing for me. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what that's what uh, these stories about music can do for people. Like you, you can share your emotional connection to someone else's favorite song, and suddenly that song means a lot more. I... In my speaking engagements, sometimes I'll talk about the need to embrace screwing up more. Mm. You know, we're a perfectionist society. We don't embrace mistakes enough. And uh, I'll take people down the path of uh, the police recording Roxanne. And, you know, if you listen to Roxanne by The Police about five or seven seconds in, there's an off-key, completely misplaced piano note. Ah. It, it makes no sense in the structure of the song. And immediately after, you hear a laughing voice. And then two yes. or three seconds later, Sting, Sting starts starts to sing. Yeah, Well, the story is he was in the vocal booth about to sing the vocal track, and his ass hit the piano. No, and he laughed, and then he started to sing, thinking, "Well, when they go to put the song together in in the editing process, they'll just take out the laughter, take out the piano." But they they played it back, and they thought, "This is so cool," that, and they left it in. I, wow. And That's- the story I tell with that is that you know I've now ruined. Roxanne for some people because every time they hear it they will now have to hear that piano note they'll have to think about Sting's ass hitting that piano <laughs> but it, 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 I, I maybe haven't ruined it but you forever change the song and I think you know now that I've shared that story about redemption song it kind of forever changes this the song for Absolutely. those who hear it next you know? yeah
0: yeah that is so funny because I can hear that little it's like an it almost sounds like it's echoing that little laugh and I always wondered why that was in
1: there yeah Wow. Crazy, eh? That's a great story. Yeah, we need to embrace our, our uh our mistakes, I think. Absolutely. Have freedom to give yourself freedom to fail.
0: I always talk about this on the show, is you think about the old stones, uh, you know, the faces, recordings, all that stuff. Like all the all the mistakes were all left in, but it just yeah. it, it adds to the purity of the,
1: the output. Isn't that the great thing about going to see a band live? Yeah. You know, even the stones to this day will never be perfect on any given night and sometimes the little mistakes or screw-ups or flubs or or alterations or in-the-moment jams yes they're what makes the concert great yeah. otherwise you could just go home and play the live album yeah exactly
0: yeah. no i absolutely prefer live music to studio
1: there's no yeah. question there's nothing quite like it and i wish i would have gotten the chance to see bob marley that would have been amazing he, he was supposed to play toronto on that tour mm. and uh died or or, or ended the tour yeah, he died in I can't remember when he died. February is his birthday. I can't remember when Bob Marley died. Mm. But the tour didn't make it to Toronto because he got too sick. Mm. And his last show was in Philly a few weeks before. I think his last show was in September and the October. Early October was the Toronto date that didn't happen. Oh, really? Yeah.
0: Mm. The Rolling Stones and Gimme Shelter is next.
1: Gimme Shelter, I, I I just love the sentiment of the song, which Keith Richards says he he wrote. Watching people uh, in a in a rainstorm in London outside the cafe he was sitting in, oh. watching them take shelter from the rain. Really, but they turned that into such a great time capsule of that moment in American and, and really world history, mm-hmm. and all the tumultuous political stuff happening in the late 1960s and the shit that happened to the Stones at Altamont and yeah. and all the craziness of that era was so embodied in that song and. It's, it's amazing that they were able to write a song and commercially succeed with a song that, you know, the main lyric is, is rape, murder. It's just a shot away. Yeah. But what I really love about that song is the, is the Mary Clayton <laughs> yeah. vocal. I mean, yeah. And as we talked about moments ago, when you know the history behind some of these things, these songs take on new meaning. And I always love Give Me Shelter from the opening notes that are so subdued. And then the song kicks in with this just, kick ass raw energy yes and the vocal mix on that song is just so perfect yeah it's just there enough that you can hear it but it's it's buried enough that you're not sure quite what you're hearing Mm -hmm. the lyrics aren't easy to make out which which is perfect for a song that's about so much crazy you know cultural stuff going on It, it works on so many levels but then you hear the story about mary clayton the background singer, and for those who haven't watched, uh, is it 20 Feet from Stardom? Yes, it is, yeah. Uh, the story of Mary, she's she's in her uh, New York apartment in the middle of the night. It's uh, after midnight, her hair's in curlers, she's pregnant, and the producer calls, the Rolling Stones are in town, and they're looking for a background female vocalist to sing this really raunchy rape-murder lyric. And uh, in my speaking engagements, I often tell the story with the approach of there are doors open to you that you don't see because you're closed. Your mind's closed. Mm. Mary Clayton could have just said, dude, it's it's midnight, I'm pregnant in bed, call somebody else. Yeah, She didn't have to say yes. Mm-hmm. But she her mind was open to the opportunity. And she went in, and according to the documentary, she didn't even really know the Rolling Stones. She, she wasn't a fan. That's right. And she, she they were the Rolling Somethings. And she went in and sang the, the line, and then did one more pass on it, yeah. And just committed to knocking them on their ass. And then another example of a possible mistake being left in the song, when she does that pass on rape murder, it's just a shot away. And her vocal breaks. And then she goes up an octave and her vocal really cracks. Yep. And then Mick, who's clearly standing off to the side somewhere, lets out a woo. Yes. Like, wow. Yeah. And if you listen carefully, that, that, that moment of like, wow, that Mick lets out is in the song. Yes, why not? Right, that's so cool.
0: I was alluding to that earlier about the just leaving stuff like that in, and clearly, you know, that happens, and it surprises him. Yeah, you can. He he's like,
2: "Whoa, that's my favorite part of that song."
1: Absolutely, and and you know, for those who are hearing the story for the first time, you'll hear "Give Me Shelter," and you'll hear that background vocal, and then you'll hear Mick in the background, and that's it's just it's a it's a beautiful moment of recognizing that sharing that moment of intense surprise, pleasure, mm-hmm. shock, delight with the listener is is genius. And 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 that's one of the things today I think that I'm not the kind of person who would who would, you know, beat up on today's music. I still make my living with, with music and top forty stations, and country stations, and hip hop stations. There's a lot of good in today's music, but one of the things that is missing is that raw and sometimes wrong, broken mistake mm-hmm. that gets left in. Because everything today can be polished and fixed and auto-tuned and and corrected, and yeah, that makes for a pristine experience, but it doesn't make for an emotionally connective experience because no. we're human beings, mm-hmm. and we're all we're all flawed. We're all messed up in some weird way. Yeah. When you reveal those mistakes to your friends, listeners, uh, I think you bond with them. Yes. And a song like "Give Me Shelter" lyrically would have bonded, but when you add in all those layers of of, of all those other things, the song just forms a connection that, to this day, gives you chills, man. That song, I hear that, I hear that isolated lyric, and you can look it up on YouTube. The isolated lyric from mm-hmm. "Give Me Shelter," and the hair on my arms just stands right up. Yeah, so cool.
0: Yeah, no, it really is. Yeah, there's an accessibility there as a result. Yeah, right. They're like me. They screw up. That's right. There's a purity about it, and you feel that much closer. You feel almost like you're there mm-hmm. when you. You know, it's very personal. There's a very personal aspect to that 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 you don't get today. You're right. And not to bash, but I mean, that's the stuff that I love about all those old recordings. I want to hear the chair scrape on the floor in a a Dylan song. You know, you listen to Sweet Virginia by the Stones, and you can tell they're just sitting in a circle, you know, at four in the morning. It's it's fantastic. That's
1: what I want. You're 100% right. I mean, when's the last time that somebody, you know, left the fret noise on every breath you take? Mm -hmm. And left that in the song, and now when you listen to every breath you take, the uh, the the fret noise isn't just eliminated; it's reverberated. It's part of the haunting nature of the song. That's right. But anyone else, you know, would have taken that out. Yeah. Because it's not perfect.
0: That's a good point. That's one I haven't really considered. Because you're right. I can hear that in my mind right now. There's a there's almost a reverb on it, an echo that. Yeah. You know. Yeah, metallic echo.
1: It's it's. When you think about what that song's about, the stalking nature of that dark nature of that song, Mm -hmm. it really works. Yeah. It's almost like another instrument besides the guitar being added in. Yes. Very interesting. (laughs)
0: Okay. So your next tune, uh, one of my favorite first lines, went home with a waitress the way I always
1: do. (laughs) Warren Zevon, Lawyers, Guns, and Money. That's it. I feel a little douchey putting Warren Zevon on my list. Why? Well, because I think that if you like, say you're a Warren Zevon fan, you're yeah. like, "Oh, really? Like, you know, are you that pretentious?" <laughs> but my first exposure to Warren Zevon was was like everyone else was "Werewolves of London. London," and for about a decade, that was the uh, the beginning and the end of my exposure to Warren Zevon. And then there was a movie that came out in the early '90s it had Danny Glover and Steve Martin. It was called "The Grand Canyon." Mm-hmm. And Steve Martin was, in, it was in a serious role. It wasn't a comedy role. The movie, I don't think it did very well, but in the soundtrack to the movie, there was a song called Searching for a Heart mm-hmm. by Warren Zevon. And so that took me down a Warren Zevon rabbit hole and I discovered Excitable Boy and and I discovered all the back catalog of Warren Zevon and just fell in love with his incredibly vivid storytelling and just his weird ability to tell these fantastical Bizarre, you know, rolling the headless Thompson gunner. Yeah, like who the hell says that? Yeah, and that sort of contextualizes Werewolves of London. Yes, it contextualizes a lot of his music that was just so bizarre. But Lawyers, Guns, and Money for me represented that Caribbean dream again. Mm. You know, that I'm in the wrong place sort of attitude. Mm-hmm. Warren, Warren sang in that song about. You know, I went home with a waitress. I was gambling in Havana. It's sort of this sort of modern day pirate. And I love that. I love the adventure of that song. To me, that song always embodied, you know, I'm going to, you know, go discover this. I'm going to go here and do that. I'm going to travel the world. And that song has been covered a bunch of times, too, by a whole bunch of different artists on tribute albums and things. And it's it's I love the cover versions because people interpret that song differently.
0: Yeah, definitely.
1: Um, and again, we go back to uh, the other songs I've chosen. I probably could have chosen a bunch of other Warren Zevon songs. Mm-hmm. But but that song, just to me, spoke the loudest. Yeah, no, I can see that. And I love the line, uh, you know, the shit has hit the fan. And the other line where he says, uh, Dad, get me out of this. Yeah. You know, here's a grown man still saying, Dad, I need your help. <laughs> I thought that was a really cool line. Yeah. I I was playing it uh, the last time I was in Cuba and, you know, listening to uh, I was gambling in Havana and took a little risk. And it just, it resonates with you. I think it's a great song to play when you're going anywhere because it's a traveling, it's a road, it's a road trip kind of song. Oh, yeah, for sure. Yeah. Yeah.
0: He's always had this unique ability to convey imagery, you know? Yes. People are probably more familiar with uh, Werewolf in London. Yeah. You know, his hair was perfect. You just, you kind of developed this mental image of what he's talking about, which is bizarre, but also really interesting. And
1: yeah. And pulls you in in that way. He uses words and phrases in a way that, I mean, who would start a song with, I went home with a waitress <laughs> the way I always do? How was I to know she was with the Russians too? Yeah. It sort of feels to me like a Gordon Lightfoot ability to write. Like, yeah. like, like when you listen to uh, uh, Edmund Fitzgerald, he, he frames the words and phrases in ways that if you were going to describe how much uh, a freighter weighed, you wouldn't say, he says the the good ship weighed is certain more than the good ship weight empty like oh I can't remember the lyrics now I'm blanking on it. Verses in that song. But but he sort of reverses the way he would otherwise describe it to you. Mm. And, and you listen to Sundown by Gordon Lightfoot when he's he's writing that song at the depths of alcoholism and infidelity. Yeah. And he's singing he's singing about the room where you do what you don't confess and and sometimes I'm feeling uh, I, I hate that I feel so good when, when I'm feeling no pain. Just framing, like he could, he could just say, I'm, I'm drunk. I'm sleeping around while I'm drunk. Yeah. And Warren could have said different things, but Warren Zevon and, and great writers like that have a way of taking these words and playing with them and repositioning them. Dylan did it and, and great writers do it. Springsteen did it. Uh, and just painting these pictures that because the words are in a different order than you would normally say them. Mm hmm. There's suddenly this your your mind, your your synapses are firing and your mind's electrified That's right. with color, as you said, because my brain wasn't prepared to hear those words that way. Mm-hmm. I was I was at a, a session once and there was a grand piano there. And the sign on the grand piano said, Place not a thing upon me. And I think about that because how many times have you seen, you know, a sign that says, you know, please do not place objects here? Yeah. Yeah. Well, who the hell cares about that sign? Yeah. I don't remember that sign. Yeah. But when the sign says "Place not a thing upon me," like I'm like, well, you've you've now gotten me to pay attention to something that otherwise would have been complete white noise in my life. Yes, and that's what great songwriters do. They, you know, whether it's a love song or a song about gambling in Havana or you know a, a repositioning of a human rights speech. They take words and put them into phrases and, and places and, and and use different words that somehow fire off those synapses in your brain and turn your thoughts into movies and turn you, your thoughts into maybe even actions. Yes. It's very cool. It's a very in, in incredible power that music and lyrics and poetry have to do that. Certainly. And, and I mean, people beat up on poetry if you're not a poet or into poetry. It's easy to uh, to beat up on poetry, but music mm-hmm. is just poetry. Its it songs is. are just poetry put to song, put to music. That's right. Um, the same people who sing along with a song will say, "I don't like poetry." Well, if you don't like poetry, why are you singing along to "Like a Rolling Stone"? Mm-hmm. Because "Like a Rolling Stone" is just a really good poem.
0: Yes, you're right. There's another great creative lyricist right there.
1: Oh yeah, un- unbelievable. And I-, I thought of putting "Hurricane" by Bob Dylan on that list. I'm cheating here, obviously, because I've brought up about 15 other songs <laughs> in my discussion of my five songs. Uh, but Hurricane is my, um, my go-to turbulence song. I fly a lot, yeah. you know, in my job. Whenever there's turbulence, I put on Hurricane by Bob Dylan because ah. it's seven and a half minutes long. Yeah. Rarely does turbulence last longer than that. That's right. And the story that Bob Dylan tells in Hurricane is so good. And I've, i yeah, I've heard the song a million times, yet. Every time I hear it, I can't help but pay attention to it, and mm. it distracts my mind from the thought that the wings are going to fall off this plane and I'm about to die. Oh, God. So Hurricane <laughs> is a great song. If you're ever in turbulence, it's, it's the kind of song, again, that makes a movie play in your head yeah. and uh, tells a great story. <laughs> Sorry, I cheated that one in there.
0: You did. That was very clever.
1: Uh, Bruce Springsteen is last on your list here. So this is going to go back to the the first discussion we had about growing up in a small town. And my first ex- exposure really to Bruce Springsteen was Hungry Heart mm-hmm. um, because I, I'm a little embarrassed to admit my real first exposure was Born in the USA and, and Dancing in the Dark. Oh, mine too. And that's just a product of our time, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, it's funny that I tell people my first exposure to Foreigner was I want to know what love is. And then I discovered Foreigner. My first exposure to Boston was Amanda, you know, because yeah. it was the early 80s and I was, I was getting into music. Yeah. Uh, so in terms of Springsteen, uh, it was sort of hungry Heart, And then that led to Born in the USA and that whole album and all those hits. Around that time, I was, I had just moved to Marathon and, uh, living in this small town, 3,000 people, uh, virtually no exposure to outside media. Mm. And I could not wait to escape. Yeah. And I sort of lived my high school years thinking, as soon as this is done, I am out of here so effing fast. Oh yeah, me too. I just could not wait. High school was just a means to an end to get out of town. And Marathon sat so it's on the Trans Canada Highway, the coast to coast highway for the that connects Canada. And uh it's not quite on the highway. Hmm. It's a couple of miles off the highway on a side road, which makes it even more isolated. <laughs> and when I was seventeen I, I bought a motorcycle. Ah. I bought a motorcycle off of a pilot and he needed money for training and I needed a motorcycle. So I said to him, I don't know how to drive a motorcycle. So he took me out to the airport, which was just one long strip of pavement that, you know, maybe one plane a day landed on. Mm. And he taught me to drive a motorcycle up and down this 3,500 foot runway. Wow. So at the end of the day, I thought I was a biker because I could, you know, I'd had that thing up to 150 kilometers an hour. I was a biker, but he didn't teach me how to turn or how to, you know, Really ride a bike. I Mm. could drive in a straight line fast. So I would, uh, I would listen to Born to Run on my Walkman with Mm. headphones on underneath my helmet Helmet. and drive that bike out of town as far as I could go. And then I'd have to come back home. Uh, Born to Run was like the soundtrack to getting the hell out of town. And whether I was actually physically, you know, riding my motorbike out of town or just thinking about getting the hell out of town, Born to Run was the song. And I eventually totaled that motorbike because a few months after buying it, I did have to turn at some point (laughs) and I had to turn to avoid someone who had, who had swerved into my lane and uh, I wasn't a very good biker. So I totaled the motorbike. Oh, wow. Still born to run, you know, just the visual imagery of being on that motorbike with his girlfriend, Wendy, Mm -hmm. on the back of the bike. And he sings, you know, wrap your legs around my velvet rims and strap your hands across my engines. And together, Wendy, we'll break this trap and we'll run till we drop and baby, we'll never look back. I'm, I'm messing up a whole bunch of the lyrics. But it's the, the just that imagery of of getting the hell out of For Springsteen. It was Freehold in Ashbury Park, New Jersey. And for me, it was Marathon. It was this song is an escape. And when I hit play on that song for four minutes, I'm escaping. Yeah. Now going back and discovering the process that Bruce went through to write that song and create that song and the meticulous production and the borrowing of Phil Spector's wall of sound and everything that went into it and the East Street band. I mean, it's kind of hokey, but, but when I go, I've seen Springsteen, you know, a dozen or so times. And, uh, when he does born to run at the end of the show with the lights on in the whole stadium, I, I will cry. Mm-hmm. That song moves me to tears in that moment. Absolutely. I can hear it now without crying. <laughs> I'm okay. But, uh, hearing that in that stadium environment with the lights on and the whole band going full speed and just the emotion and power that just comes at you from that song, yeah, it's it's like nothing else to me. From the opening drum notes to the very last uh power chord, and maybe on a less punchy level, but but a more emotional level, there's a song in there which says, "I'll love you with all the madness in my soul," mm-hmm. which just sort of says like. I'm perpetually screwed up. Yeah. I get it. We all are. Yeah. But I'm gonna give this life everything I've got, even though I'm screwed up. Yeah. I just love that lyric.
0: Yeah. And I'm giving in to this thing. I am yeah. completely all in.
1: Yeah. Yes. Yeah, and he up. and Springsteen is such a great example of of being all in yeah. on his his persona. I say his brand, but it sounds insincere to what he is, because there are probably few people people who have lived their brand more authentically.
0: I completely agree with that. Like,
1: if you listen to uh, Tunnel of Love, at the time he recorded the Tunnel of Love album, he was married to his first wife, the actress whose name escapes me, Julianne Mm. Phillips, maybe? I can't remember. If you were his wife and he brought the tapes home to say, hey, listen to my new album before I release it, you would know that you were about to get divorced. Mm -hmm. Because every song is about the confusion of the relationship he's in and losing himself in the situation and being... You know, he has a line on brilliant disguise, uh, God have mercy on the man who doubts what he's sure of. Yeah. You know, he revealed himself so completely and, and, and so openly on that, on that album. And then to come back a few years later with the Human Touch album when he and Patty Scialfa are now a couple and they're living in California and they're going to raise a family and he sings Lucky Town. Yeah. And he's abandoned the E Street band because it was important to discover who he was. And then to come back to it all and and to record songs like The Rising coming out in the wake of 9-11 yeah. and to record We Take Care of Our Own at the height of the 0809 recession. He just knows what his fans are going through mm-hmm. or, or else perhaps it's the other way around. Perhaps his fans are living a, a life that's kind of on the same trajectory as his. Or maybe it's just the fact that we, at some point in our lives, have all gone through all the things that he's living. But he's willing to just put them out there, all in. Yeah. And uh, if I had to list one song that, that connects with me more than any other and makes uh, those chills happen, it's Born to Run.
0: Yeah. No, that's a great pick and, and very well said. Yeah. Thanks. Yeah, I get excited talking about it. <laughs> this has been a fantastic chat. I, I really enjoyed this. Thank you. I have
1: too. I I appreciate the challenge of coming up with these songs and articulating the reasons why they matter and uh, talking about them and and hearing your story and finding out our stories are so connected Mm. and learning that uh, 30 years ago we may have been on opposite sides of that school playground, um, but yet here we are in the same room uh, appreciating the music at the same time together i think that's it's not that, it's a beautiful thing that's it really incredible is. it
0: really is thank you so much for coming out my pleasure all right this has been no sleep till subway with brent jensen and my very special guest mr steve Jones. till next time folks take good care
2: brent jensen is the best-selling author of no sleep till subway leftover people and all my favorite people are broken all titles available in stores and on amazon worldwide